0: Hi, and welcome to Fado, an audio adventure into fantasy, folklore, and fairy tales. I'm John, your host. Thanks for dropping in. We are moving right along here. Welcome to episode three. I think you're going to be pleased to know that I have finally managed to make some progress setting my microphone levels. We're all in this together, bad audio and all, uh, but I think it's going to be better from here on out. Today's story is Norwegian, but as seems to be common, I have managed to find versions of it all over. Um, East Asia, Greece, Russia, and I'm certain there's a lot more that I didn't find Also, it's becoming pretty apparent that I'm going to have to stumble over quite a few unfamiliar languages and words, but I will give it my best shot. Our story today, Why the Sea is Salt, is apparently related to a much older story. A Norse poem, actually, called Grottasong, or The Mills Songs. This is a poem that appears in the poetic Edda a collection of old Norse poems, and concerns the story of two captured and enslaved giants, and they are forced to grind at a mill that no regular human is strong enough to turn. And the result of the story is a a lot like the story that we're going to hear today, except in the older tale, there are giants and armies instead of two brothers So this story is one of those tales that answers an unknowable question for those that were telling it and for those that were listening. It's an explanation in the form of a kind of tall tale as to why the sea is so salty. A lot of times you'll find these kinds of fun, incredible, outlandish explanations for something mundane like sea salt. This one really surprised me with humor a couple of times the first time I read through it. It's over-the-top and amusing, to say the least. I really hope you like it as much as I did. And now, as published in Andrew Lang's Blue Fairy Book in 1889, Why the Sea is Salt. Once upon a time, long, long ago, there were two brothers, one rich and the other poor. When Christmas Eve came, the poor one had not a bite in the house, either meat or bread. So he went to his brother and begged him in God's name to give him something for Christmas Day. It was by no means the first time that the brother had been forced to give something to him, and he was not better pleased at being asked now than he generally was. "'If you will do what I ask you, you shall have a whole ham,' said he. The poor one immediately thanked him and promised this. "'Well?' "'Here's the ham. Now you must go straight to dead man's hall,' said the rich brother, throwing the ham to him. "'Well, I will do what I have promised,' said the other, and he took the ham and set off. He went on and on for the live-long day, and at nightfall he came to a place where there was a bright light. "'I have no doubt this is the place,' thought the man with the ham. An old man with a long white beard was standing in the outhouse, chopping yule logs.' "'Good evening,' said the man with the ham. "'Good evening to you. "'Where are you going at this late hour?' said the man. "'I am going to Dead Man's Hall, if only I am on the right track,' answered the poor man. "'Oh, yes, you are right enough, for it is here,' said the old man. "'When you get inside, they will all want to buy your ham, for they don't get much meat to eat here. "'But you must not sell it unless you can get the hand mill, which stands behind the door for it. "'When you come out again, I will teach you how to stop the hand mill.' "'which is useful for almost everything.' "'So the man with the ham thanked the other for his good advice and rapped at the door. "'When he got in, everything happened just as the old man had said it would. "'All the people, great and small, came around him like ants on an anthill, "'and each tried to outbid the other for the ham. "'By rights, my old woman and I ought to have it for our Christmas dinner, "'but since you have set your hearts upon it, I must just give it up to you,' said the man.' But if I sell it, I will have the handmill which is standing there behind the door. At first they would not hear of this, and haggled and bargained with the man, but he stuck to what he had said, and the people were forced to give him the handmill. When the man came out again into the yard, he asked the old woodcutter how he was to stop the handmill, and when he had learned that, he thanked him and set off home with all the speed he could, but did not get there until after the clock had struck twelve on Christmas Eve. Where in the world have you been? said the old woman. Here I have sat waiting hour after hour, and have not even two sticks to lay across the other under the Christmas porridge pot. Oh, I could not come before. I had something of importance to see about, and a long way to go, too. But now you shall just see, said the man. And then he set the handmill on the table and bade it first grind light, then a tablecloth and then meat, and beer, and everything else that was good for a Christmas Eve supper, and the mill ground all that he ordered. "'Bless me,' said the old woman, as one thing after another appeared, and she wanted to know where her husband had got the mill from, but he would not tell her that. "'Never mind where I got it. You can see that it is a good one, and the water that turns it will never freeze,' said the man. So he ground meat, and drink, and all kinds of good things, to last all Christmas-tide.' and on the third day he invited all his friends to come to a feast. Now, when the rich brother saw all that there was at the banquet and in the house, he was both vexed and angry, for he grudged everything his brother had. On Christmas Eve he was so poor that he came to me and begged for a trifle for God's sake, and now he gives a feast as if he were both a count and a king, thought he. "'But for heaven's sake tell me where you got your riches from,' said he to his brother." From behind the door, said he, who owned the mill, for he did not choose to satisfy his brother on that point. But later in the evening, when he had taken a drop too much, he could not refrain from telling how he had come by the hand-mill. There you see what has brought me all my wealth, said he, and brought out the mill, and made it grind first one thing and then the other. When the brother saw that, he insisted on having the mill, and after a great deal of persuasion got it, but he had to give three hundred dollars for it and the poor brother was to keep it until the haymaking was over, for he thought, "'If I keep it as long as that, "'I can make it grind meat and drink that will last many a long year. "'During that time you may imagine that the mill did not grow rusty, "'and when hay-harvest came the rich brother got it, "'but the other had taken good care not to teach him how to stop it. "'It was evening when the rich man got the mill home, "'and in the morning he bade the old woman go out and spread the hay after the mowers,' and he would attend to the house himself that day, he said. So when dinner time drew near, he set the mill on the kitchen table and said, Grind herrings and milk pottage and do it both quickly and well. So the mill began to grind herrings and milk pottage, and first all the dishes and tubs were filled, and then it came out all over the kitchen floor. The man twisted and turned it, and did all he could to make the mill stop, but— However he turned it and screwed it, the mill went on grinding, and in a short time the pottage rose so high that the man was like to be drowned. So he threw open the parlor door. But it was not long before the mill had ground the parlor full too, and it was with difficulty and danger that the man could go through the stream of pottage and get hold of the door latch. When he got the door open, he did not stay long in the room but ran out, and the herrings and pottage came after him. "'and it streamed out over both farm and field. "'Now the old woman, who was out spreading the hay, "'began to think dinner was long in coming, "'and said to the women and the mowers, "'Though the master does not call us home, we may as well go. "'It may be that he finds he is not good at making pottage, "'and I should do well to help him.' "'So they began to straggle homeward, "'but when they got a little way up the hill, "'they met the herrings and pottage and bread, "'all pouring forth and winding about over one another.' "'and the man himself in the front of the flood. "'Would to heaven that each of you had a hundred stomachs! "'Take care that you are not drowned in the pottage!' "'he cried as he went by them as if mischief were at his heels, "'down to where his brother dwelt. "'Then he begged him, for God's sake, to take the mill back again, "'and that in an instant, for, said he, "'if it grind one more hour the whole district "'will be destroyed by herrings and pottage. "'But the brother would not take it "'until the other paid him three hundred dollars.' and that he was obliged to do. Now the poor brother had both the money and the mill again, so it was not long before he had a farmhouse much finer than that in which his brother lived. But the mill ground him so much money that he covered it with plates of gold, and the farmhouse lay close by the seashore, so it shone and glittered far out to sea. Everyone who sailed by there now had to be put in to visit the rich man in the gold farmhouse, and every one wanted to see the wonderful mill for the report of it spread far and wide, and there was no one who had not heard tell of it. After a long, long time came also a skipper who wished to see the mill. He asked if it could make salt. Yes, it could make salt, said he who owned it, and when the skipper heard that, he wished with all his might and main to have the mill. Let it cost what it might, for, he thought, if he had it, he would get off having to sail far away over the perilous sea for freights of salt. At first the man would not hear of parting with it, but the skipper begged and prayed, and at last the man sold it to him and got many, many thousand dollars for it. When the skipper had got the mill on his back, he did not stay there long, for he was so afraid that the man would change his mind, and he had no time to ask how he was to stop it grinding, but got on board his ship as fast as he could. When he had gone a little way out to sea, he took the mill on deck. Grind salt and grind both quickly and well, said the skipper. So the mill began to grind salt, till it spouted out like water, and when the skipper had got the ship filled he wanted to stop the mill, but whichsoever way he turned it, and how much soever he tried, it went on grinding, and the heap of salt grew higher and higher, until at last the ship sank. There lies the mill at the bottom of the sea, and still, day by day, it grinds on, and that is why the sea is salt. Now, you wouldn't know this unless I told you, but you got the best of three complete recordings of this one. The first time I read it on the mic, I hadn't really grasped all of the things that were going on in the story. I realized it partway through that version. And the second time I tried to bring more Of what I thought was better inflection and emotion, but that one, even though it was better, was far too loud and clipped. So there's often a rule of threes in fairy tales, and so why not in their recording? Uh, But the third time was just right. This is the Goldilocks version. Not too loud, not too flat. I mentioned laughing at this one a couple of times. It happened most notably twice anyway. Once, when I realized that Dead Man's Hall was essentially purgatory at best and hell at worst, his brother gave him a ham and sent him to hell. And not to be bothered, of course, the poor brother goes to give it his best shot, and I found that hilarious. There are other tellings that I ran across that paint this part a little differently, and sometimes it may be fairy-type creatures that have the mill to begin with, creatures that live underground, uh, but definitely not here. This is definitely some sort of purgatory type state. It occurred to me that the man trades a ham for the mill, but the mill seems to be able to grind anything, including meat in this version of the story. At first, it seems like a plot hole, right? I mean, that's what I thought. But then I thought, If this is some kind of purgatory or hell scenario, then maybe they have the mill and can't use it. You know, some kind of torment. In other versions I found, the mill can make anything except what the poor brother seems to be carrying. So in any case, he has what they can't get. In terms of the moral that this one tells... On the surface, it might have a little something to say about greed and its consequences, but I think it's more about looking before you leap. You know, if you look a little bit further, knowing the consequences of your actions, best to know before you begin in excitement how exactly what you're about to do is going to affect the world around you, that sort of thing. Also, mind that the pottage doesn't boil over or you might drown. That's in there, too. That was the second time I laughed, by the way, the image of the richer brother in a dead run coming down the hill with this deluge of herrings and pottage coming after him could be something out of a Monty Python bit. He just yells to his wife as he's going by without so much as slowing down. And I I don't care what century it is. That's hilarious. This guy just barreling past everyone straight to his brother's house to try to get him to, to buy the mill back. I don't know how they ever got back to the mill to begin with. If I think about it, I mean, the whole world would have been herrings and pottage unless they had a boat or something. (laughs) I don't know. So digging into this story a bit, looking for its older relatives, sent me to the poetic Edda, as I mentioned in the beginning. And by extension, that led me to the Codex Regius, which is Latin for the king's book. So if you haven't heard of this, it's worth looking into This is an old collection of Norse poems from Iceland, uh, supposedly a 13th century collection, and it's the oldest existing example of old Norse poetry. So it's a slice of that culture there that's preserved in this volume. Both of these volumes, the uh, Poetic Edda and the Codex Regius, I'm going to have to try and investigate. The idea is pretty fascinating. I found out that J.R.R. Tolkien counted these stories in the Codex Regius, As influential to his work, a a number of other authors as well have cited it, but I'd like to check into them a little bit because Tolkien was one of the authors that first really drew me into fantasy to begin with. I mean, he was for many people. That's nothing unique, Uh, but I would be really excited to learn something about some of his influences. It would be a, a pretty interesting thing to pursue. Anyway, this story was fun. And in my opinion, managed to be relatable and funny. I mean, how many times have you gotten into a situation well over your head, whether literally or figuratively, because you didn't read the directions? I think it's still a solid warning today, if you ask me. So be careful. Make sure to look before you leap. Except for this podcast, of course. Jump right into this podcast. I mean, what is the worst that could possibly happen? Okay. Many thanks once again, gang. Look for episode four coming out on Sunday, June 14th. And be sure to subscribe and to follow wherever you are listening uh, so that you can stay in touch. I'm looking forward to hearing from you, and I am looking forward to telling you more stories. Thanks for listening, and I will talk to you once upon a next time.